בלאגן. I'm Kobe Cohen. Lobbying, generally in the name of corporate interest, has become a permanent feature of policy making in most democratic countries, including in the US and Israel. If the big companies are represented by lobbyists, then who represents the people? I want you to meet Lobby 99, the first and only public lobby which is working to represent the interest of the general Israeli public on a wide range of social economic issues, including banking reform, pension rights, healthcare, and lowering the cost of living. Rachel Gore, an Israeli attorney who worked as an advisor to an Israeli cabinet member for almost a decade, and now serves as director of policy at Lobby 99, is here to explain how to advance the public interest for the vast majority of the public that cannot afford to hire a corporate lobbyist to represent them in the halls of power. Welcome, Rachel, and I'm glad to have you here at Balagan. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's give our audience some background about this phenomenon of lobbying in Israel. Did it start in recent years or it goes all the way back to the early days of Israel? I would say that lobbying is probably one of the oldest professions, perhaps not the oldest profession, but certainly one of trying to find someone who is uh, influential, who has the ear of the person in power uh, and using those connections to advance your interests is as old as time. An interesting curiosity, I always tell people there's the uh, today the, the senior cabinet level in England is called the Privy Council. And it comes from the word privy, which is toilet, which is literally the person who got to stand outside the bathroom while the king was going to the bathroom and then could, you know, had an opportunity. The king couldn't move. Right. He's stuck in one place. And here you have an opportunity to push, you know, your clients and your issues. So you see, lobbying, you know, predates perhaps most uh, modern democracies. So in some sense, lobbying has always existed. Uh, particularly in Israel, we've had what's called the, the Machel phenomenon. which is an old Yiddish word, which basically means uh, someone who's connected, right? Someone who uses their connections uh, generally, Fixer. you know, fixes things, exactly. <laughs> Not things, but problems. You know, you come to them with a problem and then they fix it. And that terminology, that sort of position has existed since uh, the inception of the state of Israel. And in fact, uh, one of the uh, seminal first decisions of the Supreme Court of Israel, which is known as the Bagats, the High Court of Justice, was dealing just with that issue. At the time, it was the 1950s, and the Ministry of Transportation was trying to clean up its act and, in general, was trying to create a more orderly state. And at the time, they forbid machers from being present at the, basically, the DMVs, at the places where one could receive their license. And uh, as is often the case in Israel, the machers uh, received notification that they could no longer work in that line of work. And instead of saying yes, they said no. And they incorporated and they sued. And in the end, they lost the suit. But the case exhibits for us and highlights perhaps how pivotal the phenomenon of lobbying is in the uh, Israeli mindset and in the Israeli uh, governing ethos. Lobbying, as we refer to it today, as in firms that offer a set of services, whether they're called, often they're called strategic advisory firms or consulting firms, lobbying has a negative connotation, understandably. And so generally these firms call themselves something else, you know, which sounds a little bit different, but in the end, it's, it's the same thing. It's selling connections to those in power, to decision makers, as we would say here in Israel, for money. 
And the modern lobbying firms started in the 1970s, along with the, uh, the Aliyah from uh, the beginnings, the first Aliyah from the former Soviet Union. Okay. And many of these olim came from a world in which lobbying was a very organized profession. And they brought with them uh, those understanding and opened one- In the Soviet first... Union? Yes, in the Soviet Union. Amazing. Sure. One of the many things that came with the Aliyah, some were good, some were bad, this was one of them. And the first lobbying company was established by an Ole from the former USSR, and it was called Policy. It's currently not the largest, perhaps, but the most senior lobbying company in Israel. Yeah. And from there, it's grown. Today, there are four or five very large companies. Policy, Gilad are the first two come to mind, but there are dozens more. And in addition to these lobbying companies, most major companies currently also have a position called the uh, coordinator for government affairs, there is generally what they call it, which is basically an in-house lobbyist. So any major company, the banks or Amazon or Google or Intel, will also have, in addition to their external lobbying company, which they hire on a retainer, they'll also have their in-house lobbyists to ensure that their interests are fast-tracked in the halls of power. But there is also another sort of lobbying which comes from the parties themselves. Right. It's usually different because in most cases it's more ideological, but there is also, I would say, pockets of power with the parties. Lobbying in its essence is the ability or the desire to affect decision making. And so if I, for example, want, uh, I live in a highly residential neighborhood, there's a lot of kids here, and me and my neighbors want to put in speed bumps so the cars have to slow down. Okay, and they don't come, you know, shooting down a street while the kids right. are playing outside after school. So our attempts to influence the regional council and to ensure that they both fund and construct those speed bumps is 100% lobbying. But generally, when we talk about lobbying as an institution, we're talking about companies that kind of organize companies that offer their clients their services for pay. So yes, within parties, especially the large parties that kind of traditionally have a primary system where they, for example, they have Oda or Likud, where the, the party base actually votes for who will run in the next Knesset election. So right. obviously there also will always be these internal struggles, you know, between the party base and its leaders and how those decisions are made. In addition, how both policy and funding in the end is allocated. There's also a struggle between parties, which we often see particularly between the Haredi parties and now the Arab parties as well, within the government or in the essentially view their role as lobbying for both funding and autonomy for their constituents. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. We all want something, whether it's on an individual or a communal base, and it is both wise and definitely possible to lobby for that reaction. I personally, perhaps some of my colleagues would differ with me on that, I don't believe that there's anything wrong with lobbying per se. It gets a bad name, but I don't see it as being really essentially different from hiring an attorney when you go to court or hiring an accountant when you open a business, right? You know, it's simply, if you hire when you, you know, enter into certain interactions, you hire someone with the expertise to ensure that you are able to complete that interaction successfully. So if you want to affect policy, in this day and age, you should, it would be advisable to hire a lobbyist. The question that comes into play is who can hire lobbyists? In the end, it's a very large expense. In Israel, lobbyists make somewhere between 20,000 to 100,000 shekels a month. 
which uh, just as a way of comparison, is more than double to 10 times the median wage. So it's a lot of money, and most of them are hired on retainer by several clients. And so, of course, the question then is who can afford to pay these astronomic sums of money? And the answer is large corporate interests. And that imbalance in resources creates a situation in which companies or corporate interests, large companies for the most part, the wealthiest, the 1% of society, has the ability to hire people who can influence policy, while the public, the 99%, does not, right? Because the public is scattered, the public doesn't have funding, the public is amorphous, and therefore the public is less represented in the halls of power. And that was the idea behind Lobby 99, was that we would change that imbalance, we would fix that imbalance, we would find a way for the public, which is very disparate, to indeed be represented in the halls of power and to ensure that the public would get a fair say. And before we dive deep into what B99 is doing, I want to ask you, was there an, never an attempt to block the lobbyists or to narrow their influence in the Knesset? I mean, sure. no, we do have the, the lobbyists. We have the lobbying law, 100%. No, there have been several attempts to kind of minimize or institutionalize the effects of lobby. They haven't been overly successful. The first was an amendment, was a law, which was actually an amendment to the basic law of the Knesset, which passed in 2013, to the best of my memory, which said that lobbyists are required to wear an orange tag, an orange name tag around their neck. And thus, it is easier to, or possible for the first time, to identify who is a lobbyist, because that even that wasn't clear. And that lobbyists need to register with the Knesset as lobbyists. And when they register, they need to list who their clients are. So for the first time, you can understand who is representing who, right, which is critical. One of the first big projects in my organization, a Lobby 99, was to amend that original law. And that amendment was in 2018, give or take. And in that amendment, what we did for the first time was force lobbyists to sign in when they enter a committee session. So up until that point, right, the lobbyists would sit in the back of the committee session, they would whisper in people's ears, you know, they would pass notes, they would write SMSs, but they wouldn't speak in front of the committee. They wouldn't speak to the protocol. So no one ever knew that they were present unless you had been physically present in the committee session. And although committee sessions are technically open to the entire public, nobody comes except for the people who are participating. And so nobody knows their influence was, was, you know, it's like the invisible hand. Nobody knew who had been there and who had whispered and who had affected. And that was one of our first big successes in legislation was to force them to sign in and to state for the protocol who their clients were. So for the first time, you knew who they were representing. I'll give you an example. When I was a senior aide to a minister, I was present in a debate in the committee regarding farmland in the remote Negev area. We call it in Hebrew, Chavat Bodedim, and it's the attempt to, I guess, to reclaim or to settle part of the Negev by incentivizing farming. And there's no in money rural areas. in extremely rural desert areas. And yeah. one of the rules of lobbying is that, you know, you see lobbyists where there's money. And in this venture, there's no money. I mean, the state pours a lot of money into it, and there's security concerns and ideological reasoning behind that. But there's no farmer is making a lot of money off of these remote little farms at the end of the world. And I walked into one of these meetings, this was before uh, Lobby 99 had passed, 
and require the lobbyists to inform the public that they were there. And I see in the back row of this committee four or five lobbyists from all the major companies, Republic, Gilad, eh, Policy, et cetera, et cetera. And so immediately alarm bells start going off in my head. And I say to myself, well, they're not here to represent farmers, right? Because the farmers don't have the money to hire them. Why are they here? Why are they sitting in the back passing notes? And eventually, as you sit there, I put two and two together and I realize all of the four lobbies here represent the major four cell phone companies, which means they must be trying to run up an antenna on one of these new farms. Uh, and <laughs> that's, you know, and that's the reason that they're here, ensuring that this esoteric little bit of legislation indeed gets pushed through. But again, if I hadn't physically been present in the room and watched them work, I would have never had any idea that this law didn't pass in order to help the farmers, or at least not only in order to help the farmers, passed primarily because of pressure from the cell phone companies that wanted to string antennas up in these remote areas. So, you know, that's kind of a real world example. And so, yes, there have been many attempts. There's currently now all of these, what I said up until far, unfortunately applies only to lobbies in the Knesset. In the halls of government and ministries, there are currently no restrictions on lobbyists. They don't have to wear tags. They don't have to identify as lobbyists. They don't have to disclose their clients or anything of the sort. But now, fortunately, after years, actually, it's been a long project since the inception of our organization five years ago, we have been pressuring specifically the Ministry of Finance to take responsibility and to kind of create clear guidelines for interaction between members of the Ministry of Finance, who obviously control the state budget, and lobbyists. And just about two months ago, for the first time, they put out an internal ordinance, which basically forbids members of the ministry from meeting with lobbyists unless they report and receive permission to meet beforehand and requires them to record the conversations, not with recording equipment, but to write some sort of summary so that we, the public, have some idea of who they're meeting with and, and what they're promising to who, when, where, what. And that's an extremely positive development in this field. And in fact, in just two, three weeks, I'm going to participate in a roundtable that's being hosted by the Ministry of Justice, and we're going to discuss how we expand this pilot from the Ministry of Finance to all the ministries of government, basically to the whole public sector. And so, yes, there are definitely attempts and successful attempts to limit the influence of lobby, but um, I guess I'm a realist. I believe that that influence will always be there, and therefore it is important to some extent or another, and therefore it's important that the public be represented with its own lobbyists as well. Can you give us another example for something I would say that influenced the Israeli public prior to Lobby 99 that was involved with the heavy lobbying? The classic example is the story of the yellow vests, really kind of drives home the point of, of how strong the lobbying institution is in yeah. Israel. And the story that I'm about to tell you is actually part of a channel, I believe it was channel 12 at the time, Expose, which aired, and uh, you know, for those readers who uh, speak Hebrew, you can type it in, you can search it, Efodazoel, or Yellow Vest. It really is a phenomenal piece of journalism, and uh, you, know, you have to give credit to those who receive it. And basically, the story is as follows. One of the major lobbying companies, Gilad, decided that in a lull between Knesset sessions, they would offer a course for pay to aspiring lobbyists who could come and learn from them how to be a lobbyist. And one of the major Israeli news stations sent an undercover reporter, a young woman with a camera pinned to her chest, and she sat in the sessions. In one of the sessions, 
one of the instructors, a senior lobbyist at this company, uh, bragged about how they had created what we call the yellow vest law. And for those who don't know, in Israel, anyone who's driving in a private vehicle is required, in addition to having you know, their license and the license of the car, et cetera, is required to have a yellow vest in the car. It has these kind of reflective strips. It's uh, made out of this kind of meshy, effervescent material with reflective strips. And the idea is that if you have to, whatever reason, stop by the side of the road or you know, in a non-designated parking spot, when you get out of the car, you need to come out wearing that yellow vest, which will be more visible. It's in order to protect pedestrians, protect people from you know, car accidents, et cetera, et cetera. And all of this, if there is a requirement, every Israeli has to wear one. And if you're pulled over by the police without having one in your car, if you get out of your car on the side of the road without wearing the vest, you are liable to pay a very hefty fine. And in this story, this lobbyist who didn't realize he was being recorded at the time explains how this law came into being. And the story is, it's one of those situations where truth is stranger than fiction. The story is as follows. A major global company called M3, they're the company that makes all of the little post-its that we use. In fact, now they also make the masks, they kind of corner the American market at least. Yeah, the N95 N95 mask. Exactly, the N95 (laughs) Corona mask. So now they've kind of swung into, you know, kind of public awareness once again, but they also make those little post-it notes that you use whenever you're studying for a finals exam. They actually make a lot more stuff. They make a lot of stuff, 100%. It's a huge, huge global company. Those are simply their most well-known product. And they had a contract with an African country to sell them what's called this yellow parasitic material, the same material of the vests. And for whatever reason, the contract fell through. And M3, Israeli representative, or I think more accurately, was probably the European representative, got stuck with two tons of this parasitic material in a warehouse in Tel Aviv. Anybody who's business knows that holding your wares in a storage unit costs money, right? You have to rent that storage unit. Basically, you're losing money every day, but you don't get your produce or your issues out. And so this was costing him a lot of money. You know what to do where, what he could do with this material. He wanted to unload it, basically. He was stuck with these two tons of parasitic material and he wanted to unload it. And so he went to an Israeli lobbying company and he said, perhaps you could help us because if we melt down this yellow mesh material, we could make it into those orange traffic cones. So maybe you could help us win a tender with the Minister of Transportation to supply orange traffic cones. And that way we can melt it down and you know we can get rid of it, we can kind of cut our losses. We won't make money off of it, but at least we'll cut our losses yeah. and we can stop paying storage. And the Israeli lobbyist said to him with that kind of typical Israeli hubris system, you're thinking small. You need to think much bigger. And he says, what do you mean much bigger? He says, we are going to create a law that requires every Israeli to have in their car a vest made out of your yellow material, your yellow mesh material. You know, the company where man was, he was a tad floored. And he says, how are you going to do that? They said, don't worry. You know, we'll yeah. take care of it. And three representatives says, well, even if you could theoretically pass a law that would require it, how can you ensure that we win the tender, that in the end of all this work, right. we're the ones who benefit? And once again, the lobbyist says, again, don't worry, I lie, I'll take care of it. And he says, I will include in the tender two things. One, that you have to be able to supply the material immediately. And two, that it has to meet a European manufacturing standard. And you're going to be the only one because you already have the material here in your warehouse and you manufactured it in Europe. So you'll be the only one who's able to win. And the M3 representative says, sounds to me like a real long shot, but 
you know what? Fine. I pay you on a retainer basis. Anyhow, go and do it. And, <laughs> you know, if somehow this manages to happen, you'll get a bonus, you know. And indeed, the lobbyist then explains to the class and to the undercover journalist how he starts to plant the seeds, how he goes to the research center of the Knesset, and he brings them all sorts of statistics about car accidents and people who get killed when they leave their car on the side of the road and how one of the best solutions would be a yellow vest. He speaks to the legal advisors. He speaks to different MKs. He speaks to the ministers. And he cobbles together a coalition in the name of traffic safety, obviously, not in the name of his client. And indeed, the law passes. And every Israeli is required to buy one of these yellow vests. Mm -hmm. Now, the way legislation works is that it's often comparative. And Israel was the first country to pass a law like this. After Israel passes the law, a bunch of other European countries countries copy this law. And they pass it too. So not only does M3 (laughs) actually use up the two tons that they have, they order another 10 tons. And it becomes one of their most successful products on the market. Because they've created and cornered this new market for reflective vests. And again, you know what I'm saying, were all of the people or all of the decision makers, the members of Knesset and the ministers, the members of the various ministries who were involved in it, were they working to advance the public interest? Were they working because they were concerned about car accidents? I have no doubt that their desire and the reason they put the law together was in order to prevent people who stopped on the side of the road from getting hit by cars, make them more visible. Yeah, to reduce casualties. To reduce casualties, 100%. And as is well known, car accidents is a big, big problem in Israel. However, what they didn't realize was that there was someone who was pulling the strings behind the scene. And in this case, it was the lobbyist. And his interest was very simply to make as much money as possible for his client. And again, this is a story in which you say, all right, you know, I'm not pleased with how this law came to be, but in the end, it's a good law. But in order to prove just how strong the lobbying institution is, the same TV channel actually did another expose the following year. And here they hired an actor to play a French businessman. And he came and he proposed to the same lobbying company that they should put what's called a chakalaka, a police siren on every car. So if you happen to have an emergency, right, you know, your wife has to give birth, you have your own police siren, okay? Now, unlike the vests, which cost, you know, a couple of shekels, a couple of dollars, these are expensive pieces of equipment, right? They're about $150, $200 a piece. And the lobbying company once again says to them, no problem, we can make it happen. Everybody will have to buy a siren and have it in their car. Now, in this case, the legislation didn't go forward because, again, there was no client, right? The client was an undercover reporter. But it illustrates just how strong and how influential lobbying is in Israel. And you can find its fingerprints on so many pieces of legislation if you know when and how to look. So, yes, lobbying is very, very influential. And that comes with a price. Yeah. And now, fast forward to 2015, Lobby 99 was founded. Who was behind the idea? And tell us a little more about how Lobby 99 was founded. Well, Lobby 99 was founded, was the brainchild of the original founder, someone named Yaya Fink, and his partner, Elinor Deutsch, who is the current CEO. CEO. And the idea was really very simple. It was basically, as I was saying, that, that the public requires lobbyists. And in the end, if the public wants to be heard, if remember in 2011, there was a very, very large public protest against the cost of living against the frustration that many Israelis had with difficulties of making ends meet, 
feeling that they were being marginalized, that corruption was preventing them from improving their quality of life. And these were major, major protests in the summer of 2011. A million Israelis came out and marched in the streets with their children. And there was a feeling that the change was imminent. But that change never really came. Nothing really changed. There was little bits in here. There was a, you know, a committee to investigate the high price of living, and it wrote a report. And here and there, there were little changes to minor pieces of legislation, but the revolution never came. And that frustration caused a lot of people in the public center to start to rethink how you create effective change. Because if a million people marching doesn't create change, then, then how, how do you actually do it? And from that thinking spring actually a number of initiatives in the civil arena. And one of them, in my humble opinion, the most influential was Lobby 99. And it was based on the very simple idea that if you want to do business, you need an accountant. If you want to go to court, you need an attorney. And if you want to actually affect policy and create actual change in the government or in the Knesset, you need a lobbyist. And so the founders got together a group of people, started with just them, and slowly it grew over the last five years. And they got together a group of people who came from the system, people like me who had worked in uh, senior positions, advising ministers who kind of understood the system in and out. This is the same sort of people that obviously the commercial lobby companies try and recruit, right? People who know the politicians, who know the Knesset, who know the procedure who know how to advance legislation or government decision. And they approach them and ask them instead of working for public for private lobbying companies or leaving the public sector entirely, would they come and work for the public in the public lobby? And it shifted something. It created a new awareness in the Israeli political system that now there's a new actor. It wasn't just government and corporate interest. There was government, corporate interest, and the public interest. And that was something that needed to be answered to, that needed to be met. Here was you know, something new that uh, both MKs and government officials had to, had to deal with, had to talk to, had to try and help. And it's made a real difference in the public sector. And even your model is different. I mean, your whole model... Our model is unique, yeah. It, it Our is model unique. is really one of the most interesting things. To the best of my knowledge, we are the first organization in the world to use this model on this scale and for the purposes of lobbying. And basically, Lobby 99 is incorporated as a non-for-profit organization, but it's run as a company. And it is funded from the first shekel to the last shekel. That's our commitment to our public, is that we don't take any money from private concerns. We don't take any money from donors or non-for-profits. We don't take any money from the government. We are funded from the first shekel to the last shekel by what's called crowdsourcing which basically means when we started five years ago, nobody knew what that meant. But now, you know, everybody is in the, uh, in the Head Start world and it's become a much yeah. more popular model. <laughs> we have at the moment 8,000 ordinary Israelis, and that number is growing all the time, who pay a monthly donation of their choice between a shekel to 1,500 shekels. We don't permit monthly donations above 1,500 shekels precisely because we don't want to have undue influence. And anyone who donates, regardless of the amount, becomes basically a member, a voting member in our lobby. They become our board, for lack of a better term. You know what I mean? If we were a company, then these would be our stockholders. Yeah, shareholders, exactly. Our shareholders, yeah. Yeah. On a side, the average monthly donation is not high. It's about $10. 
are about 30, 35 shekels. So we're not talking about a lot of money or large sums of money, but a little bit of money from a lot of people can make an enormous change. And in our case, you know, that 8,000 members, each with their small donation, created a budget of about a million dollars with which we run an operation that hired, at the moment, we're 12 accountants, attorneys, people who specialize in social media and public campaigns in order to protect the public's interest. Another thing that's unique about our organization, unlike many of those kind of in the civil arena, is that we try and target the widest possible social consensus. So our organization is based on the belief that if you take out questions of religion and state, which in Israel are very divisive, yes, rabbinate, no rabbinate, et cetera, yes, Haredim, no Haredim, wherever you fall on that spectrum, I think that question put outside the debate. And if you take the question of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is also enormously divisive in Israeli society, and put that out of the debate. And instead, you focus only on social economic issues, with the emphasis being on the economic side of the social, that you can reach a wide-ranging consensus. So for example, it doesn't matter if you are Jewish or Arab, if you live in the periphery, if you live in Tel Aviv, if you're a settler living over the Green Line, Nobody wants to retire and discover that they paid an extra 2% management fees and hidden management fees on their pension. pension, Now, you know, the sum of money that they thought they would have to use in the golden years of their life is significantly reduced. That's something that, you know, is burning and is important to everyone, every citizen in that they are a citizen and everybody can work towards creating a future or a reality in which, you know, those problems are solved. And that's exactly what we do. Uh, Actually, insurance reform and banking reform is one of our big issues. And that is a real world example of a fight that we took on was the hidden management fees. And something's very new in Israel in the sense that we really do try and reach that wide ranging consensus. And we try and represent the whole public as a public, the 99%. And anyone is welcome to join. Also Israelis abroad, so long as you have it through that suit, you are welcome to join. We would love to have you. And we also, I think what is interesting about our cut is that we find new members generally in parlor meetings. And we are committed to go anywhere in the country, within the Green Line, out of the Green Line, you know, one of our members lives in the Kibbutzim, in the periphery of Aza. One lives on the north in Kiryat Shmona. I live outside of Jerusalem in a very rural area. The rest live in a kind of in the greater Tel Aviv area. And we will go anywhere in the country, so long as you get together 20 people and explain the model of lobby and why we think you should join. It doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. We believe that you can be a partner in this change and that this change will benefit you in the short term. Perhaps it's another thing to mention is that we're a very practical organization. We don't enter into issues in order to fight or in order to protest. We're not a protest organization. We're here to solve problems. And so if it's not a problem that we can solve or at least improve within the six month to a year time period, then it's not something we're going to enter into. We're not here to protest. We're here to create real change, to save you actual money on a monthly basis that you feel that you recognize. There is a wide range of topics that you can deal with, but also the way you choose the topics are unique. We spoke about the fact that each one of the paying members in a way is a stockholder. So how do you choose what topics to focus on every year? Excellent question. And it's actually our members, as you said, our shareholders who choose what issue we're going to deal with. 
twice a year, basically around the, each session of the Knesset, there's a winter session and a summer session, our shareholders, what they receive beyond our services for their monthly donation is the right to both propose and choose what new issue we will address. And we have elections twice a year in which we choose a new issue that we're going to address in addition to the issues that we already address, or we refocus an issue in alliance with, in accordance with the feedback that we get from our members. And in fact, we're actually gearing up for a vote right now. In fact, we're opening up the voting system this Friday. So if anybody wants to join, now is your time to influence. You get to choose the next issue. And we're going to have a bunch of really great issues who are going to go up. For example, there's going to be the question of customer service and the rights of consumers. Consumer fraud is going to be an issue. Workers' rights is going to be an issue that we're going to discuss. Privacy in the internet age is going to be one of the options. And these are all very pertinent issues, and we will invest our energies and uh, the efforts of the new lobbyists we hope to hire for this issue in whatever our public chooses. It's their choice. They choose, and we execute. And I will also add the link of uh, Lobby 99, even though you can Google it, lobby99.org.il, but I will also add a direct link in the Lovely. episode description. Our time is almost up. I want to ask you one last thing. I want you to give some uh, hope to our American listeners and tell us about one of the successes that you had and with a small spice of what can be done even in the US. I mean, do you think that a public lobby can work? in a place like the United States? A hundred percent. There's no question that a public lobby could work in the U.S. And in fact, we have been approached by groups in the U.S. and in a number of European countries to consult about creating or copying the Lobby 99 model in their countries. And in fact, in the U.S., you have the advantage that lobbying is actually much more transparent, perhaps much more influential in the U.S., because in the U.S., you have all yeah. a much less strict, I would say, regime of campaign financing than we have here in Israel. And so lobbies can use that to influence politicians in a way they can't in Israel. But the lobbying is also much more transparent. You know, lobbyists are registered regardless of what branch of government they're working in. It's a very large, very institutionalized profession in the United States. And I think there's no reason that a public lobby in the U.S. wouldn't be able to very seriously affect reform. I mean, you see that there's already many different lobbying for causes, which are very, very powerful, whether it's a... Uh, the lobby for retirees or the gun lobby are kind of the two well-known examples, but there are hundreds of lobbies in the U.S. And I don't know if they do good work or bad work. I suppose that depends on your perspective, but they're certainly <laughs> very, very influential. And there's so no is APAC if we're talking model. about the Jewish uh, the, 100%. The Jewish point. APAC, right. APAC is extremely influential lobby. I didn't even think about that. It's funny. But uh, yeah, lobbying in the U.S. works. That is a given. And the question now is, will and how kind of the general public harness that power for their purposes, for the public good? And in terms of successes, I mean, we have dozens. I can maybe describe one small and recent success to you. I'm an internal optimist. What can I say? I have spent 10 years kind of the senior echelons of Israeli government as an advisor to a senior minister. And I must admit, perhaps I am naive, but I have yet to meet the corrupt MK or the corrupt minister. Everyone I have had the honor of working with, and I've worked with people from uh, the entire political spectrum, from the far left to the far right, to the Haredi parties, to the Arab parties, have come truly committed to serving their public and to bettering at least the good of their particular sector, if not the good of the entire country. And 
often the system is built for them to fail simply because they are overstretched and overworked and they lack a serious knowledge of the issues at hand. And often in Israel, these lobbyists manipulate those gaps in knowledge and experience between them, the senior lobbyists, and you, the junior MK, for the purposes of their clients. But the desire, even if it doesn't kind of happen in reality, the desire to do good definitely exists. And in my experience is we come as public lobbyists to support MKs and ministers and government officials working in the public interest. They are very grateful for our services and very interested in cooperating and in working together for the public good. I think that marks me as an optimist and perhaps I am naive, but I, uh, I definitely believe that it is possible to create effective change. I'll bring you a small example, just a recent struggle we dealt with. In Israel, for the first time in 2018, companies were required to label products that have extremely high levels of sugar, of sugar trans fat, of salt, and salt. Right? Yeah. yeah, and in fact, it's, it's one of been one of the most controversial reforms in the health field, perhaps in the past decade. And it was so controversial that it was actually a satirical Israeli TV show that came out poking fun at all the lobbyists and the Knesset officials who uh, both tried to pass and tried to stop the reform. And basically, the way the reform worked was that it went into effect in 2019, actually, on the 1st of January 2019. And the second phase was supposed to go into effect on the 1st of January 2021, which would basically lower the standards for labeling. So you would not be able to put in, you have to lower the amount of sugar, trans fat, or salt in your product in order to avoid having to slap on it a red stamp, which obviously, you know, most food consumers are not interested in doing. And in um, early 2020, Corona hit. And basically these large food producers said, this is a great opportunity. We've been trying to kill this reform for five years unsuccessfully, right? We were able to kind of tone it down. We were able to undermine it, you know, in certain places, but we weren't able to prevent the major reform, which forces us to put these red stickers on highly unhealthy products. And now we can use the corona as an excuse. And they started hiring lobbyists and lobbyists started talking with the senior officials in the Ministry of Health. And they basically said, look at us, poor us. You know, everyone's at home, they're stuck at home, they're buying more food, we have to produce more food. We don't have time to comply with this new reform. You know, mm -hmm. delay it, just delay it indefinitely. And at some point, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll revisit the issue. And as soon as we saw that in Lobby 99, we said that was it. We knew that the moment food companies have been trying to kill this reform for years, and if they succeeded in delaying that reform going into effect, they were going to kill it. They were going to be able to delay it indefinitely. And we launched a very public campaign, bringing the issue to the attention of the public. And we corresponded with, we lobbied the Minister of Health. We raised the issue by writing columns in the major newspapers. We put it out on our website, called various MKs who had been involved in the first step of the reform and told them that this was going on. Because you have to remember, people in their day-to-day -day lives, they're busy. You know, most of us, we don't have time. You see, maybe you see a small news item, and generally even that doesn't exist, you know, regarding the work of lobbyists. And you don't even know that the reform was supposed to be ratcheted up and that now the second phase is basically dead in the water. And in the end, we were successful in uh, convincing the head of the Knesset Health Committee, MK Chaim Katz, 
to hold a public hearing on the issue in the Knesset about a month and a half in late November, right before the second phase of the reform was supposed to go into effect. And he held it, he invited us, and we explained our concerns that lobbyists were going to succeed in undermining the second phase of this reform. And being, you know, kind of the cameras were rolling and, you know, we had taken the work of the lobbyists instead of it being done, you know, in the dark and behind the scenes, you know, we kind of pulled them out into the light in front of the cameras, in front of the public. And the senior officials of the Ministry of Health had no choice but to publicly commit that they would not be affected by the pressure of lobbyists and that the reform would go into effect on the 1st of January 2021, as promised. And indeed, that happened. And it's a small success, you know, but it is a success. And now products that were not labeled with red labels are labeled with red labels, and the public has the ability to better understand what they're putting into their mouth, what they're eating, and how they can, you know, protect the health and well-being of their families. And that's a classic example of our work which is, you know, kind of you and your life or in your day-to-day life, you don't have the time, you don't have the energy, and you shouldn't have to have the time and the energy to kind of think about these big macro events or, you know, or the major reforms that are starting or stopping or being held up. And, and that's our job. You know, we do it for you in order to improve your quality of life. This is a very real example of something that we're able to do that creates a better world for me, for you, for everybody. Yeah, I love it. Rachel, good. pleasure. Director Thank of you. Policy at Lobby 99. Thank you very much for joining us today and enlightening us. And once again, if you have an Israeli ID number, you can uh, join Lobby 99, become a stockholder, and start influencing what's happening on the day-to-day lives. Thank you, 100%. Rachel. 100%. We would love to have you. Thank you very much. It's Bye. been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day. Oh, 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 oh,